brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. On this edition of the podcast, we're looking at the future of war and peacekeeping. 75 years after the end of the last major global conflict, the Second World War, how exactly have things changed? And are technological advances making the world a safer or more dangerous place? First, I spoke to Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, a man who literally wrote the book on the future of war, and asked him what he thinks future conflicts will look like. Well, if it's only cyber, then it's not war, um, because unless there's actual violence involved, it's something different. People tend to talk about purely cyber as being sort of grey zone, things short of war. Um, the, the book I wrote is, is basically a warning against fu- uh, predictions about the future of war. Um, for the, the reasons the predictions are often wrong, predictions about the future of war are wrong, but, but also because you need to recall that most... Um, when people are talking about the future of war, they're normally talking about decisions that have to be taken in the here and now. They're talking about what we think we need uh, so that we can cope with what comes. When people talk about the future of war, it's often about the things we need to deter or or, or avoid. Um, The best predictions are that it'll carry on as we are. So if you look around the world, there's plenty of conflict, violent conflict going on. Uh, it's normally a mixture of the irregular and irregular. Uh, so you have uh, old-fashioned armies fighting in the way that uh, armies always did, but often against militias, guerrilla guerrilla forces. Uh, they're complicated and they're messy and they're very difficult to bring to a conclusion, um, which is why they keep on popping up again. Um, so that's the, that's the best assumption, is that what we've seen really since, um, certainly since the end of the Cold War, and arguably well before, will, will carry on, is, is fractures within states will produce uh, local conflicts, uh, and people will fight them with whatever they can get their hands on. So if we can't talk uh, about the future of war with any uh, confidence, what do you predict would be the nature of conflict or the weapons of future conflict? I mean, the the point that we've reached, which we reached in 1945, is that the expectation is that a war between major powers would go nuclear, uh, that it would escalate to to, to weapons of enormous destructive power. Uh, And that still remains the case. There are many countries, though, that, that don't fear nuclear escalation, those that they, are, that they might fight wouldn't necessarily go nuclear early on. Um, and um, as I say, uh, you, you can see uh, how new technologies influence those. Perhaps I mean, the other new technology that's made a lot of difference is, is in the digital realm. So the wars up to 1970 um, were pretty brutal affairs if air power was involved uh, because bombs weren't very accurate. After 1971-2, um, they started to look pretty accurate. So we now have an expectation that if, again, major powers use weaponry, um, they can use them with great accuracy and precision. Um, so that 
that again it, it has changed the way that we assume wars are fought. But then you get the other end of the scale when militias, guerrillas are involved. Their targets are often deliberately civilian because they're trying to frighten whole populations. Uh, and that, as we saw with Rwanda, which a genocide that was conducted with the crudest weapons imaginable, can be pretty gruesome in, in not too long a time. Sir Lawrence Friedman, thank you very much for joining us here on the agenda. My pleasure. So let's hear from someone who is on the ground reporting on many of the major conflicts of the past decades. I'm joined by former BBC war correspondent and author of a new book, War and Peacekeeping, Personal Reflections on Conflict and Lasting Peace. And the author is Martin Bell. Martin, you've covered uh, at least uh, 11 conflicts reported from 80 countries. Has war changed in that time? Uh, war has been totally uh, transformed. Um, I was... I was a soldier once, because you had to be in those days. It was called national service. And the sort of war we were preparing for and being trained for was at the height of the Cold War, completely different to what's going on in the world now. There are very few um, clashes of industrial armies in the sense that of major battles. Uh, instead, there are wars are fought among the people for the allegiance of the people. And increasingly, they're being fought uh, not by boots on the ground, or well, not much, but by drones and unmanned aerial vehicles and everything the modern technology can devise. It's been a complete transformation. That's supported entirely by Ben Wallace, the UK defence minister, who said this this month, the future of defence is about converting scientific and technological genius into the heart of defence capability. What does that say to you about the future of war? It says to me that the uh, British armed forces are going to be downsized yet again. Uh, and they can argue that boots on the ground are not as effective as they used to be. I mean, if you got the whole of the British army together, it would now fit into Wembley Stadium with, with space uh, to spare. So they are going to rely increasingly on the wonders of modern technology, on, uh, on drones and, 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 and similar vehicles. And anybody who's joining the British Army now will find out if Avadri's down, if she's down there 22 years, it'll be completely transformed again by the time they leave. So you see the future of war as being mainly conducted from the air? Actually, I see the, the, the present of war, and they're not necessarily by major powers either. In the present conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, drones are being used, I believe, by, by both sides. Whereas the British had a, 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 a difficult and challenging experience in Helmand province for something like, uh, like 10 years, where there were boots on the ground. Their place has been taken by uh, U.S. Marines uh, flying drones and, uh, and, and all sorts of other pilotless vehicles and so on. But this was already starting as far back as 1973. If you remember the Yom Kippur War, the over-the-horizon uh, technology, laser-guided missiles, that is the present and increasingly the future of warfare. If there have to be wars, and I hope they don't. So in future, it's not going to be so much 
uh, an arms race as a technological race? Yes, I think whoever has the best scientists wins. But of course, there has to be uh, investment. And you, have, you need highly trained military people to make the technology work. You're not dispensing with people altogether, but you are locating them further back where they will uh, suffer fewer casualties. Let's move on, Martin, to peacekeeping, which is a, a large part uh, of your book. Um, does peacekeeping start before a conflict or only start after a conflict? Sometimes it starts before. Um, the reason in all the on all of the Balkan wars in in Slovenia, in Croatia, and most tragically in um, in in Bosnia, uh, peacekeepers were needed after the conflict began, but they were deployed in time in Macedonia. And they prevented a war there. Uh, uh, a prevention is always is always best if it can be done. Uh, but the danger is that these, these things get out of control, and 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 peacekeeping is very is very complex. It requires highly trained um, soldiers. It's completely different from uh, from from war fighting. And one of the lessons I think we learned, certainly in the Bosnian War, which I covered extensively is so that when peacekeepers are deployed, they have to be in sufficient numbers to enforce a mandate which makes sense from the start. One of the, one of the British commanders in Bosnia was telling me that we were just asked to make it up as we went along. So we've, we've, we have learned some of those lessons. Uh, and I thought, because I've been a witness to these things, uh, the time had come to write some of them down. Do peacekeepers have more chance of keeping the peace if they have the better technology? It takes not only better technology, but a sufficiency of numbers. And they have to be, to, to, they, they need what, what the military call interoperability. That is, they, can, they are trained to work with one another. This is why the most effective peacekeepers of ex-Yugoslavia were probably from the NATO countries because they had a common doctrine and they were they they were they they were used to used to working uh, with each other. Um, that is absolutely vital, and and so is intelligence in the sense of information gathering. Uh, in the Balkan Wars, the UN forces were very short of accurate intelligence. What about China? Does it have a role as a peacekeeper? Uh, I I would like to think so. I would like to think so. Uh, they have so a high number see, of boots on the ground, don't they? Certainly in Sudan, as UN peacekeepers. Oh, they, I would like to think, yes, that, that they do. In the same way as I would like to see the Americans involved in peacekeeping. So I think in, in the, you know, the, the world is a mess at the moment. Just, just look around various conflicts and collisions. Uh, I would like to think a role could be found, a substantive one, both for American and Chinese forces under a blue helmet. So artificial intelligence technology may be changing the face of war, but how is it, if it is, changing the face of peacekeeping? Uh, it's, the peacekeepers are always slow to, um, to catch up. Uh, their their uh, communications need to be better than they, they have been. Uh, there are something like 14 international UN peacekeeping missions around the world, half of them actually in 
Africa. And in Africa, the circumstances have been uh, very challenging. I think it would be hard to count as any one of them as a success. I mean, I've, I've seen these wars not only as a war reporter, but also for the last 20 or so years, I've, I've been a UNICEF ambassador. So I go to places, or I have been to places like, like, like South Sudan, where the failure of the UN mission has been absolutely um, spectacular. On the other hand, um, I think that the mainly Irish troops uh, in, in Lebanon, who have been there for many, many years, uh, have, they've taken their casualties, but they have prevented small outbreaks from, from turning into a wider conflict most of the time. So we've heard what war and peacekeeping might look like going forward here on Earth, but what about in space? I spoke to Alexandra Stickings, research fellow in space policy and security at the Royal United Services Institute about whether outer space was the future or already the present of war. It's already happening. Um, I think that, you know, there's a bit of a narrative recently that space is the next war fighting domain and that, you know, we're going to see conflict happening in space. But in reality, space has been militarized since the late 50s. Um, you know, during the Cold War, the US and Soviet Union were looking at various anti-satellite capabilities. Um, and space has increasingly played a role in conflict, in warfighting, through the use of GPS for navigation and precision-guided munitions. So it's already happening, but what we are seeing are new capabilities that are just changing the way that we're conceptualizing the role that space is playing in warfighting. So what you were talking about then was that Star Wars. Yes, to an extent. And we look at some of the old programs of uh, de demonstrations and, and potential developments in uh, satellites that would take out other satellites, for example. And we are seeing that happening now. Um, but the, the new context is more actors. It's not just the US and, and the Soviet Union at the time. We're seeing China and India and others starting to engage and increasing their military space program. So it's it's a change in how that balance of power in space is happening. In what respect? It's just making it much more complicated. Um, with so many different actors, you have all these different um, intentions and different power plays and, and how they're trying to um, create the, the perception of their space power. And at the same time, we also have an increased commercialization of space. So a lot of commercial actors like SpaceX, like Amazon, um, increasing the, the numbers of satellites in orbit um, by, by magnitudes. And often their capabilities are, are in some ways overtaking state capabilities. So again, you know, more actors, they have different interests in space and, and different um, benefits that they're gaining from that. So, that, so the, the discussions about how everyone acts in space are just much more complicated. So the likelihood for confrontation might come because of um, a, a conflict over space in space rather than reflection of something happening on the ground on Earth? Potentially, but we, you can't own space, so you can't have um, a sort of sovereignty in space. Um, but there are issues, there are areas um, where we could see some more competition rather than confrontation, particularly around spectrum allocation and frequencies, the ability to, to be able to, to, to talk to your satellites and, and to get information from your satellites. I think one of the big problems is that understanding what's happening in orbit is very difficult. We can't always see 100%. So 
potential confrontation could come from a miscalculation and a misunderstanding of what of, of an incident of, of something that's occurred. So if there is a miscalculation, hopefully some form of peacekeeping uh, would be added to the mix. Uh, is, is the UN geared up for peacekeeping in space or any other countries on Earth? No, I mean, the, the, the ability to really regulate and, and, and monitor or, or manage what's happening in space is very difficult. Um, you know, apart from the Outer Space Treaty, which is which is very old and, and um, it was very much a product of its time, um, the, the, there is a huge lack of regulation and, and law in space. And what we're seeing, uh, rather than, than treaties and agreements, are more responsible norms of behaviour. So, so an, uh, understandings of what it means to be a responsible actor in space, because everyone relies on it uh, and everyone needs to, to contribute towards keeping keeping orbit sustainable. Um, you know, if we if we have confrontation in space, we have conflict in space, we could see a huge um, proliferation in space debris and, and potentially uh, the inability to continue to use orbits. So a lot of this, as I said, is much more about power projection and assuring access to space assets that support military operations on the ground rather than necessarily you know, a shooting war in space. So in other words, we should be looking at at space as a possible place for better future cooperation than global conflicts. Yes, I think, you know, we, we, we have seen that um, throughout the history of space. And, and even, you know, if in military terms, we might see Russia, you know, the US might see Russia as an adversary in space. We have also at the same time seen cooperation, you know, through the International Space Station. Um, so that 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 sense of cooperation, I think, can can lead into other areas of space. And at the same time, you know, it isn't in anyone's interest to have full-scale conflict in space, as I mentioned, particularly because of the debris issue. Um, so we're seeing this move as well from uh, the non from the kinetic anti-satellite missiles that, that destroy satellites to non-kinetic means to how you can just degrade or disrupt the information that you're getting from space um, to, to affect operations on the ground rather than, than move that conflict into space. So many uncertainties in space then, but also so, Absolutely. Li so little legislation as well or regulation. Does that need to be changed? It does, but I think that it is incredibly difficult um, to, to get those agreements that, that all countries will come together. Um, I mentioned the Outer Space Treaty, and we, we, we have seen moves now within the United Nations, uh, particularly from Russia and China, to create a, a new treaty, a prevention for the placement of weapons in orbit treaty, prevention of an arms race in outer space. But the difficulty, of course, is that it only takes one actor to yeah. behave irresponsibly. And, and, and all the good work, you know, you know could, could mean nothing. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. And next week, we'll be looking at what the US presidential election result might mean for transatlantic relations with Europe. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. 
and always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.